we have today a historic day. Finland will maximize its uh, security, and that is not away from anybody. If Putin's aim was to limit NATO expansionism, he's done quite the opposite, as Finland and Sweden finally look to join. The accusation of provocative expansionism has been levelled at NATO from a range of different sources, from China to the developing world, to both the far left and the far right in the West. The debate over the role of NATO in Russian actions is quite polarised. Either you're seen as a Putin apologist or a pro-Western sheep. As ever in these debates, depth, analysis and history is ignored. In this episode, we'll be breaking through the simplistic debate and exploring NATO, Russia and Putin's relationship. We'll be looking at the long history, the controversies and the possible flashpoints in the past to work out what NATO's role in the war in Ukraine actually is. And how its purpose is going to change. This is Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast. I'm Ned Sedgwick. The relationship between Russia and NATO has gone through many stages since the Cold War. So I'm speaking to Jamie Shea, who had a front row seat for most of them. I want to go back to basics and see how a relationship developed and whether NATO was an instinctively anti-Russian organisation by its nature. Well, I was at NATO for 38 years, Ned, and so because that was such a long time, as you would imagine, I did a variety of different jobs, but really in two categories. One was uh, communications and information and press work. Uh, I was the spokesman of NATO throughout much of the 1990s when NATO was active in the Balkans. The second area was mainly policy planning, where I worked very closely with uh, various uh, secretary generals of NATO uh, over the years, uh, working on documents like the NATO Strategic Concept. Uh, forecasting, uh, strategic forecasting, those are kind of things. Did you ever meet Vladimir Putin in any capacity? Yeah, I think uh, on four or five times, uh, because there was a period where NATO and Russia were cooperating and talking together. Uh, there was a NATO-Russia council, and Putin would actually turn up at NATO summit meetings. Uh, for example, he was in Rome, uh, the NATO summit in 2002, uh, when uh, the NATO-Russia council was established. He signed up for that. He was sitting at the NATO table, and he was in Bucharest uh, in 2002. Eight, uh, as well when uh, NATO uh, took the decision to offer future membership to Ukraine and, and Georgia. Uh, also, uh, NATO secretary generals would go frequently to the Kremlin uh, and uh, talk to the Russian leadership and re be received by Putin. Uh, George Robertson, when he was NATO secretary general, uh, had a particularly constructive relationship uh, uh, with Putin. There was a time, particularly in Putin's first term as president, when he was interested in cooperation with the West and particularly with uh, NATO and where NATO and Russia were able to do lots of things together, particularly in terms of the peacekeeping operation in the Balkans. Did you get a sense of, of him? Was he friendly or was he above speaking to people in any capacity other than kind of diplomatic? He was not emotional. Uh, he was uh, 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 ice cold, uh, didn't say a lot. Uh, got you to do the talking. Uh, it was more information in uh, than information out. Or let his aides do the talking, like Russian uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, who, of course, has been there for uh, over a decade or, or already. Um, but he was pragmatic, and he was looking for areas of interest 
that would be common with NATO. For example, I was in one meeting with him uh, in the Kremlin where he actually asked about joining NATO. I don't think he was <laughs> intending to send a Russian application in immediately, but he was interested in seeing how NATO would react and what the possibilities would be. And in particular, I'll never forget this, he asked about France, uh, which was in NATO uh, 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 since the beginning. But in the 60s, General de Gaulle took NATO out of the integrated military structure while keeping NATO in the political alliance. And Putin said that he thought this might be an option for Russia. You know, He didn't want NATO to have any oversight on Russia's military operations, uh, but he was interested in having a seat at the NATO table to influence the debates. Uh, it was all a bit speculative at the time, but but it showed that you know Putin uh, didn't reject uh, then uh, the European security order in a way that clearly uh, the war in Ukraine shows this. Uh, he rejects that European security order now. Can you see a world in which Putin and Russia would have joined NATO? And what would their aims in joining have been? Well, it's it's a very sort of alluring question, isn't it? The sort of the what ifs of of, of history. I I don't think that Russia would have applied to join NATO uh, immediately, if at all, uh, because I think at the end of the day, you know, Russia has always wanted to be an independent, sovereign state, you know, entirely in charge of its own affairs and entirely in charge of its own foreign policy and security. So I think really that would have been a bridge too far for for Russia. And of course, as a great power, uh, it didn't need NATO protection, uh, uh, you know, with a big army and a nuclear a force of nuclear weapons in a way that tiny countries uh, or small countries like Estonia or Latvia, Lithuania, North Macedonia, Montenegro. Uh, uh, Slovenia uh, would want NATO uh, uh, protection, but at least it was a sign that he didn't see NATO as illegitimate. Uh, because if you talk about joining an organisation, then you recognise the right of that organisation to exist. Again, we're not hearing that from Putin these days. On the other hand, I don't think NATO would have uh, been ready to take a, a massive power like Russia in immediately, because of course it would have fundamentally changed uh, NATO's purpose uh, as an alliance of democracies, although Russia could have been a democracy, of course, and as a regional alliance, uh, Russia in NATO would have made NATO immediately into a a, a sort of a northern global uh, security uh, alliance. It would have transformed NATO fundamentally in a way that maybe the members weren't ready for at the time. But it's a good question because NATO never said uh, that Russia could not be a member uh, because there was a sense then that you couldn't go around offering membership to Ukraine and Georgia or possibly other countries of the former Soviet Union, like the Baltic states, and then say, aha, but what is on the table for other European countries is not on the table for Russia, because it would have actually sort of given away the secret that NATO was at heart an alliance directed against Russia. So there was a little bit of sort of rhetorical masquerade, if you like, uh, I think on both sides, but they were happy to play with that ambiguity because there was a sense that even if it wasn't about membership, it could still be used to form a much closer strategic partnership between NATO and Russia. Why was NATO first formed? What was the original goal of NATO? It was to provide a security guarantee against the Soviet Union uh, at the beginning of the Cold War and to find a way to make the Americans do something which throughout their history they had always refused to do, which was to give a security guarantee to Europe and to have a permanent military presence in Europe. So how did it justify its existence after 
the Berlin Wall fell and after the Soviet retreat from Eastern and Central Europe? Well, firstly, it was a period of enormous uncertainty. Nobody knew what was going to happen with the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and the emergence of Russia. Would it be peaceful? Would it be violent? Uh, And there was a sense of keeping NATO uh, together as a kind of insurance policy uh, against the Cold War, at the end of the Cold War at least, going bad. Uh, Then, of course, the uh, former Yugoslavia collapsed, and so NATO found new things for its military forces to do uh, by launching humanitarian interventions in the Balkans, in Bosnia and and Kosovo. Of course, after 9-11, there was a need for multinational forces to sort out the issues of global terrorism in places like Afghanistan, subsequently Iraq. NATO intervened in Libya. And also NATO found a new political role for itself, reaching out to those former adversaries in the Warsaw Pact and persuading them to turn themselves into partners of NATO. And this was a a very successful so-called partnership for peace, which eventually led to nearly all of those Eastern European countries, former communist countries, uh, actually joining NATO itself. uh, So that from the Cold War to today, the membership of NATO has more than doubled. So... We t- you spoke about interventions uh, kind of in passing, and I think it is important to to explain these interventions a bit more or kind of get to grips with them because they are not uncontroversial in themselves. The Serbian intervention is is probably the most famous one in Europe. How much has that defined Russia's relationship, do you think, with NATO? How much do you think that military intervention uh, scared Russia, if at all? Well, it's a mixed bag because uh, in the early years, if we look at Bosnia, for instance, uh, in the uh, mid-1990s when NATO started to intervene, um, it was still possible at that time to do it in partnership with Russia uh, in looking for a diplomatic solution. The Russians were part of the uh, guarantors of the Dayton Peace Agreement alongside Europe and the United States. The Dayton Peace Agreement is a peace agreement that brought the war in Bosnia to an end. Uh, Yes, indeed. The Dayton Peace Agreement of December 1995, which finally brought a stop to the uh, the war in Bosnia, which had gone on from 1992 until 1995, with all of the terrible humanitarian consequences, genocide at Srebrenica and so on. Um, and at the same time, uh, when NATO uh, decided to establish a peacekeeping force in Bosnia to implement that Dayton peace agreement, uh, Russia joined in. And I remember as a NATO official, you know, flying into Sarajevo and actually going off to inspect the Russian naval infantry uh, in a barracks just outside uh, Sarajevo, who were participating in NATO's uh, so-called I-4-S-4 peacekeeping uh, uh, force. Uh, And uh, they were part of the communication system. They were part of the command structure. But of course, you know, this was the uh, Russia of Boris Yeltsin, uh, which was much friendlier to the West and much more willing to cooperate with the West than, of course, what we have today uh, under President Putin. Um, Later on, uh, you're quite right, uh, the Russian reaction to NATO uh, became more hostile. This was part of a growing mood of nationalism uh, in Russia. Uh, It was also part of fears of NATO enlargement. Uh, And it was also a worry that NATO was starting to become a kind of global cop, as the Russians saw it, a world policeman. And of course, when NATO acted in Kosovo in 1999, also to sort of stop a campaign of ethnic cleansing, 
it did so without an explicit mandate from the United Nations Security Council. Uh, and Russia felt as a permanent member of that council that it, it had been bypassed, that what Russia, uh, NATO, excuse me, was doing was illegal. We can argue that point, of course. Lawyers have done so ever since. Uh, and that's when Russia really went on to the other side uh, and tried to frustrate NATO's efforts in the Balkans. Too often, I think we assume relationships are static. So it's fascinating to hear Putin's pragmatism as the post-Cold War period developed. There are also some really interesting things in there. As I look at the time periods where things kind of started to sour, it goes from the war on terror, which of course Russia experienced in an incredibly brutal way as the war of Chechnya developed, through to the financial crash. Something strikes me hearing that too that Putin's personal sense of pride seemed to be punctured and seemed to be ignored. It's something I wanted to explain more. I'm Dan Saber. I'm Defence and Security Editor with The Guardian. So, Dan, we've heard from Jamie about the relationship between NATO and Putin, but why did relationships sour so much in the late noughties, early 2010s? I think the crucial point is the Bucharest Summit in 2008 is a sort of real turning point. You've got to remember that Vladimir Putin's already given his sort of big uh, speech, revanchist speech, if you like, in, 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 in Munich the year before. So he's sort of suddenly drifting away from being this kind of benign figure who the West might be able to co-opt into a kind of capitalistic framework that the West understands and is much more developing into a figure who clearly wants to establish Russian sovereignty and his own freedom of action in a way that's, that's very different from the West. Nevertheless, at the same time, in the run-up to 2008, you've got to remember you've got now a relatively unpopular George W. Bush towards the tail end of his presidency. And, and what you start getting is this push from Georgia and Ukraine, who are becoming quite interested in NATO membership. And so the US start pushing for Ukraine and Georgia to become members of NATO in the run-up to the Bucharest Summit in 2008. What happens is, and it becomes quite clear, is that Russia is going to resist this fiercely. And this is a real sort of step change even allowing for the fact that the Baltic states, you know, formerly part of the Soviet Union, became members of NATO, that, that for, for Russia, for Ukraine in particular, to become a member of NATO would be, it would be an absolute disruption, a sort of fissure from the past, a real moment of great anxiety for Putin, and they, that, that Russia fundamentally saw Ukraine as part of Russia, something similar for Georgia. And and that there's lots of at this time there's lots of evidence you know George Bush is being warned by American diplomats don't do this don't do this and there's a lot of pressure from France and Germany similarly don't do this what's on the table in 2008 is to give Ukraine and and Georgia a, a membership action plan which is a kind of pathway a timetable to NATO membership uh, this of course doesn't happen and it's st still not happened um, leaving the sort of problematic compromise of uh, Ukraine and Georgia dangling. But crucially, it, it, it's the, the, something to say about the meeting itself, I think. It, it's what Putin himself said. Putin addressed the meeting and said, look, you know, such a move would be a direct threat to Russian security. Actually, it's something you mentioned Jamie Shea earlier. Something Jamie Shea told me, actually, in a conversation that we'd had that, you know, I, I remember, you know, Putin saying to Merkel and Bush and the leaders present, you know, for me, Ukraine is not a real country. And I think it was quite clear then in 2008 what his strategic view of Ukraine was. He might not. Russia might have had the ability to do anything about it, but it sort of dates back a long time that this feeling that Ukraine is something fundamental to Russia. Why did this relationship continue to sour? Do you think it was Putin trying to make it look like it was NATO's fault to 
cover up his his long term strategic goals, or or do you think in his brain he he cannot separate the two? He cannot separate NATO involvement and NATO intrusion and NATO's existence from Ukraine being a kind of fake Western backed state. I think some of this you saw in sort of Putin's essay over the last summer, you know, for We Are One People, the, the, the famous Kremlin essay, which is said to have written apart, uh, uh, you know, his version of, of, of Russian history in which, you know, Ukraine and also um, Belarus, Belarusia, uh, are, are seen as sort of fundamental, you know, integral parts of, of Russia and its sort of, uh, you know, its, and its early history. Um, and I think that whether it's NATO, and of course, latterly, as you go in from, so from 2008, I mean, the NATO issue gets to some extent shelved as a, after Bucharest and doesn't dramatically develop. Uh, and in fact, Ukraine gets minimal support from NATO under Obama, under Obama, you know, a few night vision goggles, all the rest of it. So Ukraine does shift a bit towards pushing for membership of the European Union becomes obviously, uh, 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 you know, an alternative dimension. And again, for Russia, Russia sees the EU and NATO in very similar terms, you know, we might see them quite differently in the UK, but but they are both, you know, Western alliances, one one military, one economic, of course, who, from a Russian point of view, are increasingly encroaching on on Russia's, you know, Russia's near abroad. I think is the fairest way of looking at it. It's very difficult to be sympathetic to any sort of Russian political or diplomatic point of view uh, at this moment in time. And I'm not particularly trying to defend the Russians either, but you can see. You know, Russia clearly has some red lines about its near abroad, you know, former Soviet states outside the Baltics. And it's clearly got a great degree of anxiety uh, when looking at a country like, you know, Ukraine and similarly Georgia, but Ukraine in particular, a large country on its borders, which is clearly trying one way or the other to lean to the West, is clearly developing a democratic culture and traditions to some extent, has tried to join NATO, being sort of left at the... Um, you know, left at the, the, the left hanging outside the front door, and then tries to have a sort of closer relationship with the European Union, and of course that that, that eventually takes us into the sort of Maidan crisis of of, of of 2014 and the fighting of that period. So the Maidan crisis, when the Ukrainian people ousted a pro-Russian president who actually fled himself, it's not like he was kind of lined up against a wall. He he flew off in the middle of the night in a private jet, as far as I'm aware. There is Russian accusations that NATO and the West funded that uh, protest movement and backed that protest movement. Is there any truth in that? I I think fundamentally you have to see Maidan as a sort of, you know, popular revolution, a popular revolution and a a popular revolt, uh, you know, against a, you know, against a president who seemed to have a cosy backdoor relationship with Russia. It is undoubtedly the case that the 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 the, the West, you know, the, the the EU, the US was extremely happy by the turn, happy with the turn of events. It is undoubtedly the case that there are, um, you know, there were, for example, you know, CIA activity in Ukraine and support of some of these protests. Now, I'm not saying that was at a particularly high level, but it, it it depends a lot on how suspicious your cast of mind is and how suspicious you want to, you know, you want to make things. So, if you're the Kremlin. Um, uh, it is a tempting and b convenient to see even a sort of slight element of Western intervention or support or favoritism as being something, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, fundamentally provocative that a deliberate attempt to turn Ukraine against Russia. 
And I think that throughout this period, actually, although Western support for Ukraine, the reality is that Western support for Ukraine, right up until almost the very last minute, <clears throat> was um, in terms of uh, military hardware, for example, um, was pretty limited. But there was enough that if you were, if you wanted to be, as I say, if, if you wanted to be a particular cast of mind or use it cynically as a point, talking point, then there was enough there for the Kremlin and Moscow to say that the, that the West was getting increasingly in, in, involved in Ukraine and increasingly interfering, increasingly trying to push government in one direction or another. Like so many other things in this war, if Russia ever did have a name of restricting NATO with their invasion of Ukraine, it seems to have gone disastrously wrong. Since 2004, no non-Balkan countries have joined. Now we're seeing Sweden and Finland on the verge. I want to understand the possible implications this has for European and NATO security. My name is Renata Dewan and I'm Deputy Director here at Chatham House, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Well, I think in two ways. Uh, the first is it's given a renewed impetus to why NATO exists and what it exists for, which is, I think, very much reinforcing a notion NATO as a ter territorial defence-focused alliance. And uh, the nature of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the nature of the heavy weaponry that's being used in the war is reinforcing uh, attention on territoriality, on uh, Europe, Europe's heartland. And I think answering some questions that for many years have plagued debates in Europe on NATO. What should NATO do? Where should it focus? How much should it spend? What sort of attention it should uh, have? And where should its uh, uh, labor be, uh, be, and resources be directed? I think a second thing that it's doing is reinforcing the idea of US being a critical partner in Europe. As you recall, under the Trump administration, a lot of questions being raised uh, with regard to the commitment of the US to uh, Europe and to European security. We've seen that on debates on who should pay for what and what should be the, uh, Europe's burden or division of labor with regard to its defense responsibilities in Europe. I'd like to ask you about the Nordic nations joining. Finland and Sweden, the, the ones which aren't already members of NATO, um, with their kind of extraordinary, extraordinarily quick policy um, shift from decades of neutrality to to being pro-NATO. What why has this shift been so, so quick? I mean, I went to the Swedish military museum and the pride in their neutrality is is was kind of palpable. Um and and now within within months it's it's gone out the window. Mm. It's true. Uh, it has been, I think, astonishing for many uh, outside observers. But I would flag a couple of things. First, I think Finland and Sweden's historical neutrality was based on their assessment of a relationship with Russia. So their understanding of the relationship first with the Soviet Union and then with Russia and how they could navigate that relationship. And of course, given uh, Finland's uh, neighboring uh, of Russia, very much shaped their decision on neutrality. So not, neutrality was shaped by their reading and analysis of their geostrategic surroundings and very much in relation to uh, uh, Russia and Russia's positions. The fact that that neutrality is being questioned and revisited 
is, I think, in response to their reassessment of the threats, positions, and geostrategic alignment of Russia in their neighborhood. So I think it's very much part of the same calculations. The other thing I'd add, Ned, is that for quite some time now, uh, Sweden has been debating membership of NATO. It's not a new issue on its on its political uh, debate domestically. Uh, you've had a debate around the Moderatna party of closer alignment to NATO. And since 2014, you've seen very, very uh, significant progress towards aligning closely with NATO. You see, you see a Swedish representation, permanent representation in NATO, even if they're not full members, uh, and ditto Finland since 2014. So and to that extent, I think there are nuances between Sweden and Finland. While the debate has been more, more open, I think, in Sweden, it's been uh, that closer alignment has been underway, and it's really that calculation um, very much driven by a Finnish perspective as to their security and defence that is leading to the debates in those countries. So what do you think the kind of short-term implications and, and the, maybe the long-term threats on, on what uh, NATO's focus will be? This war distracts NATO with some of the key questions that it has been thinking about previously, in particular the rise of China and how Turkey responds to China, in particular how NATO responds to systemic challenges like climate change, uh, like new disruptive technologies, and issues that were front and center of the change of doctrine and the revision of NATO's strategic concept for the first time in a decade, centering around um, what is NATO's out-of-area role in crisis management. I think this war will have short-term focus in unity in terms of greater cohesion on what is NATO's focus, but long-term threatens to distract, I think, NATO from those, those more geopolitical and broader global questions. The distinction between the actions of NATO and actions of important NATO member states is important as well. One that I'm not sure is probably understood around the world. And it's in the rest of the world, therefore, we'll be looking at next week. As prices rise, how are they seeing the war in Ukraine? Is this causing a wave of anti-Russian feeling or is there more disdain for perceived Western hypocrisy? Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Renata Dwan, Dan Saba and Jamie Shea. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producer is David Dargahi and Anouk Mie from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House. <laughs>